Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, dear people and any other sentient species listening in. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Science Fiction. It's a podcast where writers talk about their books, their inspirations, and whatever else is on their mind. I'm your host, Rob Wolf, with the If It Looks Like a Human and Talks Like a Human episode. I'm delighted to be joined today by Madeline Ashby. She is a professional futurist and author of over two dozen short stories and numerous books, including the Machine Dynasty Trilogy, the third volume of which, Rev, came out in July. And she's with me now on Skype from her home in the fair, fine city of Toronto. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. How has your summer and the last few months been going? It's been interesting to be in the in the futures field during, you know, I hate, I hate the phrase in these times, as I feel as though every corporate email that I've received since March has said in these times, or rather in these times. And so I, uh, I try to avoid using that phrasing as much as possible, but it has been a very um, interesting time to be in futures. I have a book uh, coming out in September called How to Future Leading in Sensemaking in the Age of Hyperchange, which is coming out uh, from Kogan Page Inspire, and it's co-written uh, by my friend and colleague Scott Smith, and we talk about our work in strategic foresight and doing futures and science fiction prototyping and leading workshops and stuff like that. And it's a very strange year for it to come out. We had always known that a pandemic was, you know, was going to be an issue at some point. We certainly didn't know that it was going to be in the year that we put out a foresight book. So it's been kind of strange from that. Other than that, I will say I feel uniquely pre-adapted to the situation in that I was already working from home. I'm an only child who spent a lot of summers alone at home, and I'm used to sort of creating by myself in a lot of ways. So in that regard, nothing has changed. Uh, What I do find myself missing is the opportunity to travel. I I used to travel quite a bit for work, and, uh, and I do miss that, and I miss sort of the people on the other ends of those trips and also the opportunity to sort of experience, to, to experience another place. Well, you're also less unique, I guess, now, because everyone is working at home, as you say. You're well (laughs) adapted to it, but now... It's true. People probably were once jealous of you, and now everyone's kind of... uh, Not everyone, but I'm sure some people are actually sick of it. The charm has worn off the working at home thing for some people. It's really um, one of those things that uh, kind of breaks people down in terms of... I I hesitate to use introvert extrovert because I feel like that's kind of a bit binaristic but um but you definitely see who draws 
sort of comfort and security and energy and, and verve and vigor from being around people all the time and who need that in that in their routine to be productive and people who who really truly don't who who value sort of who have a different sort of value system in terms of their daily freedom. Like what I like about working from home is my freedom. It's not necessarily, oh I hate people. It's that I value my freedom. And uh, and I think that that's what a lot of people are discovering is that that freedom is 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 a responsibility as much as anything else. Well, it's also so constrained. It's so frustrating because yes. on the yeah. other hand, you know, oh, we can all work from home. That means I could work from and you know, my fantasy would be, oh, let me work from Europe. Oh, I right. can't right. go to Europe right now. <laughs> so what am I going to do? I'm just going to stay home. Yeah. And it's it's not as though like sitting in your local coffee shop is that much more attractive. In fact, probably the opposite. And so the, the opportunities that you might once have had aren't there. And, and the same for like a lot of parents with their, with their children at home, I would imagine. I don't have children myself, but, but, the, but ordinarily, you know, before this happened, a lot of parents wanted more time at home or wanted more flex hours to work from home, not anticipating that their kids would also not, would be there. At the same time, I think. And so it's really thrown a wrench in the works of of a lot of different people on a lot of different levels. Exactly. And and as for as far as coffee shops go in New York City right now, <laughs> you can only sit outside. So as long as the weather's nice and there are tables outside, you, you yeah. could in theory do that. So I want to ask you, of course, we are here to talk about your book, but I had one more question since we're sure. on yeah. this uh, talking about these times, I don't know if I can say it the same way, in these times. <laughs> yeah. You were born in the U.S., but you've lived in Canada for many years. And I was wondering what it's like to be there now on that side of the border, on the northern side of the uh, border at this particular time or in these times. <laughs> yeah. it's, um, I'm extraordinarily privileged. Um, I'm extraordinarily privileged. I'm not you know, a wealthy person by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm, I know that there is a, a system of governance and a system of healthcare that is there in theory to take care of me. Um, and you know, health is wealth. you know, the old, the thing that your grandparents used to tell you health is wealth is true. And we're finding that. I think a lot of people are discovering that in a way that they possibly hadn't before. You know, one of the things that the Canadian government understands is that they have a responsibility to take care of their people, their residents. And even I, I live in a province, uh, I live in the province of Ontario, which is run by a conservative premier, uh, which is the equivalent of a state governor. Uh, he's uh, the brother of Rob Ford, who some of you probably remember from the crack smoking mayor days. Oh yeah. He was in the, hey, the heyday of Gawker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he 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 really burnt out publicly, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, he was he was a character, and so his older brother is now uh, the equivalent of a state governor here. He's the the premier of Ontario, and he's for the Conservative Party. Um, but even you know, at the start of this, even even they sort of understood the need to get testing out to to sort of draw down activities. Now, uh, Toronto and and sort of Ontario are in what's called phase three, which is sort of opening more and more things. And, set, you know, there's a huge debate about whether or not to send kids back to school, how many of them to send back to school, all that stuff. And we'll see if we see resurgences. To date, Canada has experienced 
over 9,000 deaths. And that's total. That's the entire country since the start. Uh, since we began charting, actually, uh, is more accurate. And that's the equivalent of about nine days in the U.S. And and so it's I feel extraordinarily lucky and privileged to be here. I'm very fortunate to be here. I wish that my parents were taken care of in the same way and that everyone was taken care of uh, in the same, if not better ways that's you know there are there are a lot of things that I would change about Canadian healthcare system or the Ontario more specifically the Ontario uh, health insurance program OHIP as it's known up here I wish that they would expand the care rather than limiting it and I think that there are a lot of improvements that they could stand to make but it's so much better than the alternative and I wish that it were there for for more people for everybody people always say they're going to move to Canada if you know <laughs> It's in 2016, they said they were going to, and, and now I think people will if if, tw if we have a repeat in 2020. I had friends who said that in tw 2003. I had friends who, who at the start of, the, of Iraq War II, said, well, I'm moving up there. And I was probably one of the only ones who actually did. And uh, I married into Canada. And, um, and it was a really, it's a tough process. I mean, I will, I'll tell you, a lot of the immigration, quote unquote, reforms that are happening in the United States were originally Canadian ideas. Shortly after inauguration, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper flew down to Washington, sort of had a, had a meet and greet or a idea sharing session or what, whatever it is that you want to call it. He basically flew into DC and gave them all, all his greatest hits. And among those were things like, you know, a points system for immigration or language tests or um, changing things like uh, not doing shorter censuses, doing, um, let's see, what else, uh, suppressing climate data, stuff like that. That was all in the Stephen Harper rulebook. But the difference is that that's what got him kicked out of office or not kicked out, but unelected. Don't ruin my image of Canada as, as, a, <laughs> as a haven that we can all escape to. I really, I sort of wish that Canada understood its potential in this moment because it has this really unique opportunity to sort of, to step up and, and sort of take its place in a way that it hasn't before. I think also like it was trying to position itself on the UN Security Council and failed in that. So I'm not sure that they'll try something like that again, but um but I think that this is a moment where a more, you know, even if it's problematic, even if it's imperfect, uh, even if it's just the beginnings of the experiment, uh, a more humane approach to, to certain issues is probably what will sustain people in the long term and, what's, and what creates prosperity in the long term. You know, in, in the 50s in, in the United States, what sustained people was not just, oh, the war is over, everyone is rich now, everyone who survived. It was that there was huge, strong union movement. It was that there was greater uh, participation in those things. There were huge public works. Uh, we expanded things like highways, libraries, infrastructure, all kinds of stuff. And it came with the it was it was held on the backs of Jim Crow, obviously. And took a good 14 years before we might get out, get outside of that at the bare beginnings of it. But I think that it's important to recognize that when you treat other people as your neighbors, when you sort of think in those collective terms, 
in the long term, that prosperity actually grows. You know, the that is the real meaning of of the rising tide raises all ships. I should save this for the end of the interview because I want to talk about your work as a futurist. But it makes me wonder: <laughs> do you do you always neutrally try to say, "Well, this is what's coming," or do you try to shape it a little bit? Because clearly, you have a sense of what's what what would be good to have coming, but that isn't always necessarily what the what's on the horizon. Right. Yeah. No, you're you're correct. I mean, in this within the scope of my foresight work, all of my work is constrained by the question. You know, it's constrained by the project that I'm working on at the time. It's constrained by the client and what they asked about and sort of the framing of, of their interest. You know, if they only want to know about the future of broadband over the next five years, that's fairly limited. Like, it's a big field. You can continue diving ever more deeply into it, but it's not necessarily what is the future of the world going to be. You know, you can talk about global trends within that, and I have. You can talk about things like climate change. You can talk about things like migratory patterns. You can talk about culture shifts. All those things play into the answer to that question or the answers, because there's never one answer. The answer is plural to that question. But your answer, like the answers that you give, are inevitably sort of always already framed by the question itself. Uh, it's very rare in the in the course of my work that I get asked, like, you know, what's going to happen? Because that's also kind of like people, that's also kind of like a fortune teller question. <laughs> and I, I inevitably get like, sometimes people, I do get sometimes the question of like, oh, so you're a fortune teller? Or, oh, so you're a, so you know the future? And it's like, no, 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 I know people. I know how people are. And that's where it crosses over it to being a novelist. You have to know how people are. That's fascinating. And I see where I've let the conversation not go off the rails, because this is all fascinating. <laughs> it just wasn't the order in which I guess I would uh, have pursued it. But I see it's because of the framing of the questions. And you were doing, as an, a wonderful interviewee would do, you were answering my questions. So it's up to me right. to now ask a right. question about the machine dynasty, so we can talk about your, your writing and your fiction. So for those not familiar with uh, the Machine Dynasty, can you talk about the self-replicating humanoid robots known as VN, short for VN, who are the main characters in the book? So what are they? Why were they built? Uh, so the, the VN, which is short for von Neumann, uh, John, after John von Neumann, the guy who originally... Uh, sort of suggested the idea of self-replicating robots for space exploration, amongst other things. Um, the VN were, within the scope of the books, uh, were initially designed by a uh, sort of charismatic global megachurch called New, In New Eden Ministries. And they were designed to help humans after the rapture. They were built as sort of self-replicating humanoids, so they create themselves via sort of robot parthenogenesis, much like a Russian doll, right? They have infinite copies of themselves within oneself. And as long as they eat a very limited diet, they won't butt off and create more of themselves. But if they eat too much, they can, they will not only just sort of grow in size to their quote unquote adult size or their predetermined adult size, but they will also uh, butt off and create more of themselves. And so within the scope of the first novel, we meet a five-year-old 
very small little girl robot by the name of Amy, who at kindergarten graduation, in the full presence of all of her human classmates and her human dad and her robot mom, where she's like literally the only robot girl in her class, the only VN girl in her class, uh, her robot grandmother shows up and disrupts kindergarten graduation and attacks her mother. And Amy, being the kind of girl that she is, runs up on stage and eats her grandmother alive. Yes, just like the uh, the charming girl that she is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, Amy's been kept on a starvation diet for about five years, and uh, it shows. And granted the opportunity, she utterly devours her grandmother whole. And thereafter, her grandmother lives as sort of a partition within her consciousness. And Granny does not like human beings and is capable of hurting them unlike most robots within the scope of the scope of the books. And she occasionally will take over Amy's body and make her do things that are very bad. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I guess it's funny because the idea of a child eating a uh, eating a person right there, that's a problem. A small girl yeah. eating <laughs> an, a fully grown person, all those things are, are kind of incredible and also very compelling. It's a little problematic, yeah. <laughs> I suppose they make a certain amount of, I mean, they, they make sense in this world because what the VN eat, they don't eat human food. They eat no, no, no. They eat machine parts and, and heavy metals and or sort of rare earth ores and things like that. And they actually can buy sort of food that's engineered for them, basically, where they they are buy they buy essentially the battery parts or shaped like food, which I actually sort of modeled after like Taiwanese vegan cooking which is, you know, food, most often wheat gluten that is formed to look like meat, but isn't. And I started imagining like what, what things would be, you know, what those machine parts would, would look like if they were press formed into hamburger patties and things like that. Right. So it's not so strange if her grandmother's actually made of this kind of metallic rare metals, that sort yeah, of thing. She's, she's all, they're all the same on the inside, which is to say that they have like sort of a uh, a silicone, a silicone skin with like a, um, with mem sort of memristors and polymer underneath, but uh, all of their muscles are just carbon ar aerogel. So they're essentially made of smoke on the inside. And so they're, you know, she eats her, but, uh, she eats the constituent parts, but she also just sort of inhales her. In essence, though, they, although they were designed presumably to be there to help humans after the rapture, the poor, the poor soul is still here, uh, <laughs> In the book, I mean, as a practical matter, until the rapture, these VN are around. Like, yeah. So what happens within, with regard to the rapture is that uh, the rapture at this, you know, the rapture has not occurred. And what happens is that the megachurch, for other reasons, uh, gets, is the subject of a massive class action suit. And in order to fund their defense, they have to sell the API and the technology that makes the VN. They had to, they had used their own coffers, their own donations, and sort of their own investments to fund the development of these creatures, of, of these robots and machines, and then had held them in reserve. But when they are forced to defend themselves, when they have to pay for defense, and then when they have to do a massive, massive payout to victims within the within the megachurch of abuse, they have to sell the API on these machines, and then they become part of sort of mass corporate production. Right, and they end up being used the way one might imagine humans would 
use and abuse oh, yeah. creatures that look exactly like humans, we but human are beings. incredibly attractive and strong and can do things. So they're essentially, yeah. you know, slaves who yes. who may be thoroughly abused as sex toys or who knows what or in amusement parks and mm-hmm. shot mm-hmm. up as as there's an incredible, you know, the beginning of the um, third book where there's a, a, a Westworld like place. Um, mm-hmm. But people also treat them the way Amy was and Amy's mother was treated, Charlotte, by uh, a human treated as a I mean, as a spouse and and the, yeah. the human father and uh, Charlotte were trying to raise Amy as, quote unquote, normal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously, uh, that effort maybe didn't didn't pan out the way they expected when she didn't ate her grandmother at the <laughs> kindergarten graduation. So I wanted to talk about the notion because it's really pivotal to the books. This idea of a failsafe and yes. yep. and I mean I I have to ask. I know it's uh, it's an obvious comparison, and I think I've seen others make it. But on the other hand, yeah. no one wants to talk about Isaac Asimov anymore for good yeah. reasons, you know, for his yeah. offensive and disgusting treatment of women. But yeah. his three laws of robotics have been a mainstay, I think, both in science fiction and even in science itself. I mean, people imagine mm-hmm. robots as these creatures that that must be programmed to not hurt humans. And, and in Asimov's conception, you know, the first law was about uh, robots being prohibited from injuring humans or through their inaction, allowing a human to be hurt. But you've taken it a step further because these VNs have a failsafe where they it's not just that they can't hurt, but they need to intervene and help a human in pain or danger. And the trilogy really revolves around the role this failsafe plays or the absence of it can play right. in right. this situation. So maybe could you just talk a little bit about the, the fail safe and why you found that a, a fertile place to really construct a whole trilogy around? Yeah, I, th- I think like the fail safe for me was really interesting in terms of like, ha- one, how do we sort of look at those laws? Because those wh- the, the Asimov robot stories that revolve around the three laws kind of turn into their own like almost like little Agatha Christie stories. Like they're they're sort of little mystery stories that revolve around a set of logical rules. And if you if you read all of them, they're about like, well, how did the robot you know, why did the robot fail here? And the robot failed here because it was compelled to to enact, to, to abide by these three laws. And we didn't anticipate, uh, designers failed to anticipate, programmers failed to anticipate how this might actually play out in real life, which is the story of all technology, that, you know, the technology gets built, it might get tested, there might actually be really advanced testing, but still people use, you know, the street finds its own uses for things, uh, uh, as the old saw goes. Uh, people use technologies for their own ends, they abuse technologies, they misuse technologies, and therefore the technology itself can sometimes fail. And so a lot of those those Asimov stories are about that phenomenon. They're, they're sort of like little programming story problems. Rather than looking at a programming problem on a whiteboard like you might do in an interview for Microsoft or Google or something like that, you they're sort of told in prose format. And that is that is their strength, because it sure as hell isn't the prose. Uh, but the <laughs> not when you the, write four hundred books in your no, life, supposedly no, you can't take yeah, the time to no, make fine no, prose. There's no time for beauty there. Yeah. But the uh, but what I wanted to do was sort of talk about 
you know, how would, how is it, how would it feel or what would your lived experience be like if that was actually you? Because the thing about the robot stories is that they're written, they're still written from a really human perspective. They're about these humans who are annoyed that their robots broke. And I started to wonder what it would be like to, to write story, to write a novel like that about, you know, the robot who was broken. No one talks about what it's like to be the robot who's broken. No one talks about what it's like to feel defective, to feel broken, to feel as though something is wrong with you, and that that something is the capacity for violence and the capacity for harm. And so I, I proposed the failsafe as almost like a neurological condition where if one of the VNs sort of witnesses violence without intervening, they essentially have a stroke. They, they they do what's called blue screening and they just sort of zero out or or blank out and they are become non-functional uh, if they fail to act in uh, the amount of time that they need to or if they are if they are even contemplating too deeply the idea of violence or the or sort of um, the capacity for violence. Even sometimes uh, one of the characters, Javier, when he starts describing, he's a, he's a VN, and when he starts describing violence between human beings, he actually stammers because it's, it's actually eating up a huge amount of his processing power uh, to, to even get through the conversation, which for me was really emblematic of how people talk about things like violence in real life. When they talk about trauma, it's actually really dis difficult. It's exhausting. It's literally exhausting to talk about acts of violence and to to imagine acts of violence and to to have that kind of empathy and that's the thing is is that i wanted to create the idea of these machines who were hugely empathetic uh and who could walk through the world with a greater degree of empathy than than the humans that they were meant to be protecting and one of the one of sort of a little side character in the first novel says you have a when speaking about the vn she says you have a humane response to inhuman behavior and that became sort of the guiding principle of, of talking about the failsafe, which then became a, a way about talking about free will and consent and what it means to have free will and consent uh, and whether or not your consent actually means anything in a society and, and how you can draw boundaries. And uh, the sort of that evil grandmother is the first person who says that, you know, real freedom is the ability to say no. Right, which she, which she does over and over and over again. And she finds a lot of ways to say no, is how I would put it. Exactly. Very expressive, very expressive ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, the VN think of humans as organic, but you got me thinking about what does organic mean, mm -hmm. because you know, the VN digests material, right? They, they can convert, they can convert it to energy, you know, the stuff they could extract from a junkyard, you know, they could find the batteries or whatever the specific elements they need and they can convert it. Or in Javier's case, his, his group or his clade, the term that you use in the book, uh, they can photosynthesize energy, so like a plant. Yes. So that seems kind of organic. And then they can you know, replicate or iterate, as they say, and they even, they don't, I mean, initially it seems like they're just clones, but uh, Amy has the capacity to to change because if she, once she absorbs Portia and she, and she bites Javier's finger off, it just, yeah. you know, 
as as a girl who eats her grandmother might do now and again, um, she absorbs some of his characteristics. So it's almost like as if there was a DNA splicing, although I guess DNA would not be the technical term that's going on. So I just was thinking, why aren't, I mean, and they're sentient too. Uh, so mm-hmm. are, aren't they alive in a, I mean, in some sense? I mean, what, what does alive oh, yeah. mean? No, it's, yeah, it's, it's a thing that, um, it's a thing that I, uh, I had always wanted the VN to come across as people. Like they might not be humans, but they were always people to me. Um, and that's a, that's almost a legal term of art in Canada. It wasn't until like 200 years ago or 200 some odd years ago that women were declared persons for the purposes of, of legal documentation. Incredible. Um, so, so who gets to be a person, you know, and you can go back and read sort of, you know, early taxonomies of native peoples or indigenous peoples, early taxonomies of the slave trade. There were huge arguments about whether or not these human beings were actually human beings. And and how you would possibly qualify that. And so it's actually a thing that for me, science fiction has always been about the definition of the human who gets to be a human being. It's about who gets to be a human being now, because science fiction is often, you know, among the primary uh, among sort of the first genres to talk about alternative visions of humanity and alternative visions of who gets to be a, a human being. And and so I wanted to sort of take that further about and talk about, you know, what is this dividing line and where do you draw it? And, and what do you do when you're clearly on the opposite side of it? Because I feel as though there's, there's a ton of science fiction stories about humans who can't tell robots apart from other humans, but there are very few stories about robots who can't tell humans apart from each other or who, or who are the ones who are judging what a human being actually is. It's, it's very rarely told from the, from the opposite end of the spectrum. And that's what I wanted to do was talk about, you know, well, what's so special about these humans really? Like, why is it that all of these robot stories still revolve and revolve around and center human beings? Why is that? And I, even in the, in the reviews of that first book, I got, I got people like, there aren't enough humans in this book. Why is it about robots? It's like, really? Oh, there's a robot. There's a robot on the cover. I kind of don't know what you were expecting. Also, I mean, the characters are fully developed. I mean, they're fully developed characters. So who cares? I mean, you could read Watership yeah. Down, and it's about rabbits, and be like, exactly. you know, I mean. But anyway, your point is more. I mean, is a fascinating one, and I and I I was thinking that I was thinking I was wondering, you know, how many stories actually do look at it from the the robots' perspective because that is the perspective of this trilogy. You're all your all the significant characters, all the points of view are. Um, yeah. And I think it's almost maybe there's a couple vignettes uh, you, you would know. I mean, obviously better than me, but it, maybe there was a couple pages here and there. Oh yeah, in the beginning of the third book. I think the prologues are always from a human perspective, yeah, right. like that, from an organic human perspective. But that's a thing I established in the first one. Then I just sort of decided to go with it for for all the others, and then it switches over to a to a purely uh, synthetic. Right. Right. Uh, well, so let's talk about it. In Rev, we have Portia and Amy again, and by mm-hmm. this point, they've been they're they they're separate so Portia yeah yeah, Portia has been extracted from Amy and lives on a 
I guess on a server. I mean, she basically lives anywhere she can live, but not in a body. Mm-hmm. So she's basically yeah. across the earth, anything that's connected. Uh, and Amy has cut her off and is in her body. And um, so they're separate, but they're both fighting for something similar. They're both trying to preserve a future for the VN that's free from human interference, basically. But yes. they're yeah. they're approaching it very differently. And so yeah. I thought maybe you could talk about that, like their different approaches. I mean, without, you know, to the extent you feel comfortable, I mean, I don't think it ruins right. this, the plot, but uh, but just to discussing their their attitudes towards humans and how they want to how they want to safeguard their own their own people's or I don't know if that's the right word their own their own species their own species yeah future uh the future of their own species and as Amy having been raised by a human father having sort of dealt with humans very early on in her life like she really sees there to be a place for humanity in that future and Portia does not. Uh, Portia does not believe that that humans and BN can can successfully coexist or healthily coexist. And she has she has very different experiences of of humans uh, from her from her early life as well. So they're each sort of speaking from their respective traumas or lack thereof and their their respective lived experiences, both of which are very valid, but. Portia is willing to go to lengths that Amy is not uh, in order to secure that freedom. And, and it's almost, you know, it's, you could find like a parallel to like activism or something like that to moder- to sort of moderation versus radicalism or something like that, or the decision to use violence and not the decision to, to work within the system versus open rebellion, like those types of things are sort of at play within the scope of the story that that Portia just does not believe that humans should exist anymore. Like she d- believes that their time is over. And Amy doesn't think that. She sort of believes that we can't condemn an entire species to extinction because it's inconvenient to us. <laughs> and and she believes in the in the the possibility of humanity to redeem itself. And Portia most emphatically does not. And doesn't, and absolutely has no uh, compunction about taking human life in great numbers. And I guess we'll leave it at that. To not say exactly yeah. <laughs> how it how it resolves itself. Yeah. So let me let me return a little bit to the idea of you know your expertise as a futurist and where you see the future of robotics heading. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of wondering too if you thought the COVID pandemic created new ideas or new avenues you know you've been seeing robots that are delivering things through empty streets mm-hmm. and then i was thinking of the different ways that you know what's it called the, when when someone is sick and they're they contact tracing right so i was thinking of oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know maybe there's some robotic more efficient way of like monitoring anyway these are my ideas which are half cracked ideas just uh, as, <laughs> but i wonder what you what you think about just the future of robotics in general and about this moment, like what might emerge from from this time? I certainly think that this moment is a changing moment within that industry and within that field in a way that it's a changing moment for so many other industries and fields. Right. Like, for example, the, the field of education is changing, like seemingly by the hour in its response to this pandemic. Now we're talking about things that 
you know, within the realm of education that we never would have talked about before, like, oh, just moving everything online all the time, or, uh, oh, we're just going to move all classrooms outdoors, or like, you know, things like that, things that were sort of pipe dreams before, or things that would sort of, you know, ideas that, that didn't get a lot of consideration before are suddenly on the table. And I think that in robotics, you're kind of seeing the same, the same thing. What this crisis has really highlighted for a lot of people is that no automation has not taken over everybody's job because automation in theory, like whether it's robots or algorithms or um, machine learning or, or what have you, in theory, according to the proponents of, of that idea, it was supposed to take all of those jobs that are actually the most necessary. You know, the, the automated checkout line at your Walmart or your, your Safeway or whatever was supposed to take the place of checkers. And yet, who needed hazard pay? Who needed to be on that front line right away, on call? It wasn't robots. It was humans. It was, it was people with, with the ability to respond nimbly, nimbly and to adapt to a crisis. It's true that we have greater need of, of robots in certain contexts. You know, I'm pretty certain that Amazon built more of Amazon Robotics package sorters and package delivery systems within their own warehouses. We knew that that was going to be an issue. Pieces have been sort of written about that in the context of the crisis. Furthermore, I believe that Jeff Bezos could donate postage sorters at any time to any post office he wanted. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. And hire some extra workers I, I to deliver ballots. I, I, I believe that I believe that he could donate envelope sorters to anyone who wanted them. Yes. Uh, at any time. Jeff, without, are you listening? Please be listening. Lost to himself uh, or to the company, just as an idea, which I also happen to think would be pretty good PR for him. But also, I think what we've seen is that, you know, in general, like the things that people truly needed hadn't been automated yet. Some of it had been, and automation had sort of taken over certain tasks, but not the things that, that people sort of truly needed. Not teaching, not caring, not nursing, you know, not talking to families, not, not even cleaning. You would think, wouldn't you? That like in an era like this, where sanitation is is actually so hugely important, when ventilation is so hugely important, when literally grabbing particulate matter out of the air, and and keeping it away from people, and and keeping the air clean, and keeping surfaces clean, and 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 so on, you would think that there would be a machine that did that, and there isn't. There there are machines that can do parts of that task, but still, it's left to janitorial staff, and there's there are reasons for that. One is that humans do it better still. And the other is that when we leave the free market to design those things, they don't necessarily design for crisis. And that's why there's always this sort of phase of catching up. Because when you ask people to, to design for a thing that hasn't happened yet, they say, well, there's no profit in that. Why would I do that? And then we're left with this. But you think it'll come then that this will let, let the people will see, well, we're going to get another pandemic. I think like within sort of the, the phase that we're in now and within like the, um, the immediate sort of phases thereafter, there's a greater argument. If you're the person who's pitching that technology, there's a greater argument now to, to, to say, you need to fund me. You need to help me develop this because here's why. 
you know, here's where we're behind. Here's where we're, here's where we need more. Here's where we need extra, extra help. Here's where we need to develop these technologies that, that will actually do this, whether it's stuff that delivers food to people or stuff that, you know, machines that clean hospital ERs or, or waiting rooms or uh, machines that effectively clean schools, that clean classrooms in between students being in them. That's a really basic you know, the lack of sanitation or the lack of technology to effectively deal with those things and the amount of time that it takes humans to do it is one of the things that is keeping students out of school. The other thing is that we haven't really managed to fully automate things like ventilation. That seems so basic. Airflow, literally the thing that our lives depend on, and yet still hasn't been developed because it's, it's also not a super sexy technology. It's not the same as an F-35. It doesn't look cool. It's not a big laser. <laughs> and, and so there's less interest in it, even though over the long term, it's, it's a lot more valuable. Yeah, and it's something that everyone is concerned about when they, as they return to offices and closed spaces mm-hmm. where they're going to spend a lot of time, you know, wondering oh, yeah. what, where's that air that's coming out of that vent actually coming from, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did mm-hmm. someone just sneeze at the other end of that, that air duct and it's blowing onto me now? Well, yeah, it's, it's the same as, you know, people worried about that on, on airplanes. And, you know, we went through a version of this with smoking, right? Suddenly introducing people to the idea that secondhand smoke was a problem really actually took like a lot more time than it should have. And yet, you know, the like legislating and creating policy and creating uh, sort of measures and interventions around that issue took a long time. And yet now it's sort of second nature. And that's, I think, like where we're at is that we're looking at something that's that's almost the equivalent of the secondhand smoke debate. Uh, or the debate around condoms, or the debate around even food protections, basic food protections. You know, the idea, the Pure Foods Act in the United States was greeted with like, with resistance when it was first unveiled. It actually took uh, a lot of people talking about unsafe food and, and disease spreading and, you know, unsanitary conditions and, and so on before people understood the actual scope of the issue. And still to this day, we're dealing with issues of, of food security and, and, you know, sudden spreads of E. coli, Listeria, Salmonella, stuff like that. And those are all sort of like little mini reflections of this same issue. I wanted to go back to just the idea. I was thinking about the idea of a fail-safe for for all robots and how it seems so quaint, really, because if people ultimately envision robots as a substitute for humans, aren't we going to substitute them in places we wouldn't want to go that are most dangerous? And and probably the most dangerous place would be serving as a soldier, you know, fighting a war. And so... I mean, aren't we already kind of doing that? I suppose drones are human operated when they're dropping bombs, but yeah, a lot of a lot of drones are human operated. A lot of even um, so, DARPA had a challenge a couple of years ago, and actually they're running the later versions of this challenge. That's why they needed a big underground space uh, earlier, like late last year, early this year. Uh, they needed a big underground sort of space to play in. Because uh, one of their major design challenges, or sort of one of their grand challenges, is developing robots that can go into uh, war-torn areas or areas where there is a huge amount of breakdown, you know, even at the level of like just collapsed buildings and, and things like that, 
that can then go and take care of soldiers. It's not that they need robots that will shoot other human beings. They need robots that will go into places in combat zones or in for former uh, combat zones to grab people who are injured and take them out or take care of them. And the design challenges around that are actually very difficult. Our bodies have evolved to handle a lot of different things about our terrain. It's not just, you know, the fact that our skin can tan or the fact that, you know, the fact that we can, we have our own heating and cooling systems within our own body. It's the fact that our limbs and our hands and fingers and feet and toes can scrabble over tough terrain. It, we can handle rock, rough, rocky terrain. We can sort of see and visualize the landscape and make decisions strategically based on how we think that we can get into a broken down building or into a building that's on fire. When you're starting from zero, that's not necessarily the case. And at the same time, there's a there's a very real need to go and, and get personnel who are behind, either behind enemy lines or they are in a place that is unsafe for humans to go. Certainly we saw that in places like Fukushima. When the Fukushima crisis happened uh, after the tsunami, and we knew that there were people in the nuclear power plant. And what ended up happening was that they had to send robots in to see how many there were. And if we'd had technology that sort of went in and, and looked at those those spaces that were way too dangerous for, for and actively inimical to human life, uh, we might have had more data sooner. And so I think that like we can talk about there's a huge conversation going on right now uh, within military forces, within artificial intelligence communities, within just basic intelligence communities about the role of artificial intelligence and machine machine learning and and robots within you know about how to how to use these these things, these objects, these creatures, these emerging minds in you know, war fighting, what the army, what, what the armed forces likes to call war fighting. And it's interesting to me that the first place that they just, that they, that, you know, DARPA thought, here's where we could make a, an actual change. This is the, the place where it's most needed is in actually caring for people because that technology is useful in a huge array of other contexts, whether it's a nuclear power plant, whether it's a building that's on fire uh, whether it's a collapsed building, whether it's, um, you know, a place where there's, you know, a toxic leak uh, or, or a chemical leak or something like that, that's where taxpayer-funded technology has benefit for a huge amount of people. And I think that's where some of the most interesting work is happening because it's meant to benefit the largest number of people. When you design for people who are in the greatest amount of danger, and the greatest amount of harm, you actually ended up you actually end up designing for a huge, huge number of people. Mm, I hope that's the incentive. I can imagine. Of course, I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of the the Hollywood version where the robot goes in and, like in Chernobyl, would go in and try to like yeah. do the cover up. You know, like maybe <laughs> yeah. try to plug something up, but also hide the evidence. You know, oh, at yeah, the same no, time. I, mean, I think that that's entirely possible. Like that's the thing is that like our technologies are are only as good as we are. In a lot of ways, and they are they are as subject to to our they are as subject to cycles of abuse as we are, right? 
And, and they, which is one of the things I think that the books sort of dwell on is that, you know, our technologies replicate our behaviors to each other so they can be harmful. You know, uh, a facial recognition algorithm or a, or a facial identification algorithm that hasn't been trained on faces of color won't see those faces as human beings, period. And the same with people in wheelchairs. The same with uh, the same with people whose gait, whose walking pattern is a little bit different. There are al- there's a great book on it actually called Algorithms of Oppression. Uh, I think it's by Sophia Noble that is about this. And so it gets you know our biases and our our problems get replicated into the things that we build. And so you have to start from that beginning place. Of, of recognizing that, that you are sort of automatically going to encode your issues into something else. And in that way, it's no different from, you know, from any other act of creation or from whether it's creating another human life or creating a work of art or creating a piece of technology. Well, speaking of a work of art, <laughs> let me just ask you one, one final question. And it's that when you're writing a book, and here you are immersed in the reality of, you know, thinking about the future to the extent that that's real, <laughs> thinking of the future <laughs> that doesn't exist yet. But, yeah. you know, thinking about the now and then inferring, you know, the future. There's, you know, you're starting in the real of now. When you're writing, presumably you're, you're not constrained by the client's question. You're just constrained by your imagination. So I just wonder how you experience that, the difference between being a futurist and then working on your fiction, do you still try to put parameters on what you're doing or do you, do you want to imagine things that might never be possible? I certainly think that when I'm writing fiction for myself, there's definitely like, it's sort of the opportunity to answer questions that I wish I'd been asked. You know, I think, I think it's more about that. It's like, Oh, I wish somebody would ask me about this instead. Or I wish that I wish that they had asked about this other thing, or I wish that I'd gotten to explore this possibility more. And so there's there's definitely some of that of of like, oh, I wish that there was more time to consider this question or more time to to dive even deeper into this possibility. It definitely allows me to be more outlandish, that's for sure, and and to to sort of be weirder, to be deliberately weirder which is a thing that I, I know people have sort of commented on. So it's, I think that there's a great deal more freedom, but you have to spend that currency in a certain way, right? Like you have to spend that currency in terms of the suspension of disbelief and, and the reader's willingness to engage with you at, at, at the level of the, within the, the world of the story in a, in a certain way. And you have to sort of frame all of that outlandishness. Uh, at least I think you do within a certain grounded research sensibility that that sort of says, okay, I'm going to ask you to accept this strangeness, but I'm going to ground it in a lot of things that are familiar to you and a lot of things that you, you're you probably more inclined to believe as a way of talking about this other dif- different possibility and also sort of a way of talking about um, how humans function or how how people actually are. Uh, it's a it's a way of talking about uh, certain possibilities in you know the the sort of 
lie that gets at the truth or the you know it, it's not real but it might be true absolutely I, I i totally get that i mean amy is a very plausible person you grab people with her swallowing her grandmother and then she <laughs> goes on and you know i mean otherwise she's quite a, a regular girl She's she has like a it's what I like about that story or what I like about Amy is that like she makes a very impulsive rash decision that we all do when we are young and then has to suffer the consequences of it. And that's very real. Like, I think that's real no matter who you are. And it's that it, the story becomes about sort of having to live with this decision that you made. And what is the fallout of that? And how does that impact other people? And from that perspective, that's a very human story to me, even though it happens to be about, you know, a person who's who's not. Well, thank you so much for for writing the trilogy and for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. I've been talking to Madeline Ashby about Rev, the third book in her Machine Dynasty trilogy. And we've really been talking about the whole trilogy. The final book, Rev, came out in July, just last month, from Angry Robot. Thank you for joining us today on New Books in Science Fiction. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. We wouldn't want you to miss an episode, and please consider leaving a review. It's a nice way to show your support. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com, and I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. I edit the show, The New Books Network, publishes the show, the network's founder and editor-in-chief, Marshall Poe, and co-editor, Leanne Wilson, keep the network running, and I couldn't do it without them. Please take care of yourself, wear a mask, be kind, and if you're a U.S. citizen, don't forget to vote. And I don't know if there's an election in Canada, but if there is, vote there too. We'll see. They have to call an election. They have to call an election, and then it usually happens between four and six weeks later. Parliamentary systems makes so much more sense to me. I I didn't understand them when I moved here. I really didn't. And I maintain that no one in Congress or the Senate could withstand the pressure of daily question period. I really, truly believe that. That's the thing where they uh, all shout at each I, other, like you see in yes, uh, British yeah, Parliament? Yeah. I, I maintain that, like, on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the aisle, I believe that that if if these people had to withstand daily question period from each other, you would see things get done a little bit faster, I imagine. Wow. I do think that there are some politicians who could really handle it. I do think that there are members of Congress and, and the Senate who actually could handle it, but they're very few and far between because it really is, it is super challenging. I encourage anybody listening to go look at YouTube, find some, find examples of Canadian question period or British question period, whatever, any, any other parliamentary system that has a question period and really just like list imagine your own elected leaders having to stand up to that all right that's everyone's assignment in addition to reading the machine dynasty trilogy yeah, that's your homework. <laughs> take care everyone thanks yeah, for listening thank you.